Hello, and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs. Who Belongs is a new podcast we launched last month at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley, where we look at some of the structures that perpetuate inequity and examine issues related to social inclusion and exclusion through a framework we call othering and belonging. My name is Mark Abizade, one of the hosts of Who Belongs. And my name is Sarah Grossman, the other host of Who Belongs. In this episode, we're talking with two guests. The first is El Sadiq El Sheikh, who is the director of the Global Justice Program here at the Haas Institute. And the second, joining us by phone from Greece, is Nadia Barhum, who is a former researcher with the Global Justice Program. They're here to talk to us about their new project that we just released at the Haas Institute called Shahidi, Corporations Decoded, which is a website that monitors the power, influence, and reach of agribusiness corporations and their role in contributing to the global food crisis. Welcome to Who Belongs, El Sadiq and Nadia. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Welcome indeed, and congratulations on the release of the Shahidi Project and the website, which is accessible at hawesinstitute.berkeley.edu forward slash Shahidi. As Sarah mentioned, the website serves as a monitor to keep corporate agribusiness firms in check, and specifically the project profiles 10 mega corporations and up to 3,000 of their brands that dominate the global agricultural market. But to help frame the problem that you're trying to address in the Shahidi project, I want to cite some figures from the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, which estimates that as of last year, 2017, there's 821 million people suffering from hunger worldwide. And that figure from last year is an increase of several, several million over the 2016 figure of 804 million people. So the problem is getting worse. Yet, as the project notes, that food production has actually been increasing since the 1970s, and there is enough food to feed everyone on the planet. So, Sade, can you get us started explaining what's going on here and, and what is the role of corporate agribusiness in the crisis? Indeed. Uh, so this assessment is... Uh Absolutely correct. And if we look at the last two decades of our uh, hunger and hunger-related diseases, maybe even the stat will be even f- even uh, harder than what we think from the Food uh, uh, and Agriculture Organization. Uh, the reason why we we have increasing hunger while we have food uh, enough to feed above more than 10 billion people. So. Uh, we have 7.3 billion people in our planet right now, but and an amount of food that existed right now is uh, time and a half for every single one of us. However, as you stated, that there's close to 1 billion people go hungry uh, since 2007. So the number fluctuates between 1.1 billion to 800 million people. Uh, we indeed made a good stride uh, in a global sense, but yet 800 people is a lot of people that uh, suffer from hunger. And the reason behind that is two things. One, food is not accessible to everybody. The second, food prices is too high. So in many parts of the world, we have um, people who cannot eat three meals a day or two meals a day because yes, their income is not uh, afford them the opportunity to do so. Even, for example, in this country, in the most powerful economic country, we have more than 46 million people who really lack nutritious food and suffer from, as the USDA suggested in their data that collected every year, that they suffer from malnutrition, 
suffer from uh, uh, a diet that is really uh, harmful to their own well-being. And most of them, or most, more than half of them are children, for example, in the United States. So it's very inconceivable to, to, to believe that in the United States there is 14% of the population actually doesn't have lack access to food. So we have different names for it here in the United States. We say food deserts uh, and the like. So all that, if you look at it and you wonder, like your question suggested, what is happening? While at the same time we see agri-food cooperation makes tremendous amount of profit. So that suggests there's certain player in the food system chain control the price and determine who could eat and who's not. Can you explain a bit the background of the name Shahidi? Um, the full name of the project is Shahidi Corporations Decoded. What does Shahidi mean and why did you name the project that? Uh, so, Shahidi, this is actually Sadig's <laughs> choice. It is a Kiswahili word, um, which means to witness. And, and part of the reason why we wanted to choose this word was uh, first to, to uplift uh, a name in a language that is often underrepresented uh, from a global south country. Um, and then Shahidi to witness means means to to witness to to expose and uh, dismantle these structures, overlying structures and systems that dictate and inform how we lead our day to day lives. The whole idea is uh, we thought that uh, the information about cooperation is indeed maybe is available in, in in the public domain, but it's really desperate. You can't find it them easily. So we always talk about you know systematic solution to the structural problems. So how you do that as a public? First of all, you need to observe what is around you. You need to witness what the harm being done, in order to be able to analyze the problem, in order to solve them. So uh, it's very hard that you could actually solve any problem if you are not witnessing what is being done. Um, what are the role of corporates, more specifically on the policy level, in uh, causing these inequities globally and within our own country? Let me start by saying this. There is no like conspiratorial kind of club people sit somewhere, decide to do what. However, the systems that in design, as we understand it, the Hassan Institute is built on structures. Those structures oftentimes uh, do marginalize the most vulnerable, uh, give more power to the most powerful. So these food uh, and agriculture corporations been able through a vast network of lobbying uh, with politicians to give the whole entire U.S. agricultural policy and indeed the global one based on their own interest. Uh, for example, like you can imagine in, in the highest uh, period of uh, capitalist system, which required fierce competition between producer in general in order for the consumer to get the right thing uh, or the right prices. Uh, if you look at the seed, for example, the seed industry, all, almost over 60, 67% of the seed industry controlled by less than 10 companies. So that's very judgmental to the way in which how these people do it. Do cooperation by themselves do that? Or there is a, a kind of a relationship between government officials, especially legislators, that passing uh, laws to protect those corporations, to allow them to maximize the profit to the extent that is really judgmental, not only just to people's well-being, but to our uh, economic health 
you know, the health of our economy, our ecosystem. So the relationship between cooperation and policymakers is very hard actually to disentangle. Is there in bed all the way? If you look at the uh, campaign finance, you find corporations that funding big uh, candidates that not necessarily even gonna run for office in USDA, for example. But they know that when it comes time to pass a free trade agreement, to pass a legislation like the Farm Bill or the SNAP, or to allow uh, to revoke or not to revoke antitrust laws, those people who've been supported by uh, this particular uh, interest group, they will indeed side with the corporation. And indeed in California now we have one of the cases, for example, we cheered when a jurist that decided that Monsanto should be banalized and should be paying uh, uh, penalty for uh, uh, the, the school guard person that suffered from cancer due to Roundup that used it for uh, uh, weed killer that uh, he used it for so many years. But now today I was reading the news that uh, most likely the judge suggesting that they might even throw the case out. So even in a legal system, you see that there is more uh, people willing to go beyond their uh, duty to actually um, uh, support the corporate profit and maximize their, their power. You just spoke a little bit about Monsanto, and we should mention the 10 corporations that the Shahidi Project looks at specifically. And so I'm going to name them real quick. They are Bungie, Cargill, Carrefour, McDonald's, Monsanto, Nestle, PepsiCo, Syngenta, Walmart, and Yum. Nadia, can you tell us how were those 10 corporations selected under what criteria? Sure. We wanted to get a good uh, kind of variety of the different types of food and agricultural corporations that exist <clears throat> in the global landscape today. So we we broke down uh, the kind of categories in this field into four, and and those are primary, intermediary, retail, and service. And what that means to us is primary being a corporation that produces and distributes raw materials such as seeds, grain, or meat for the global food system, such as Cargill and Monsanto. And an intermediate corporation is one that produces various food products such as snacks and other packaged or processed foods and drinks found in the supermarket, such as Nestle and PepsiCo. And a retail corporation sells food products in commercial retail spaces, such as Carrefour and Walmart. And then a service corporation produces food on a mass scale in fast food chain restaurants, such as McDonald's and Yum! Brands, which is KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. They're all under one corporate brand. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit specifically what you learn about these 10 corporations when you go to the Shahidi website? Sure. So the, the website tries to break down uh, the kind of corporate power and influence in a way that is accessible to users who visit the website. And, and the first thing you'll see is kind of bi biographical information about the, com about the company. So when it was founded, uh, a little bit of information about what it, what it does and its, uh, its profit, uh, where it's headquartered. And then we have on the next on the next site, uh, an activity map which shows where corporations operate around the world. Uh, and then there's an industry section in which uh, it shows which in which industries each corporations are involved. So, for example, uh, it could be from shipping and freight 
to poultry, to fertilizers, pharmaceuticals, to energy, to insurance, etc. I mean, the list goes on. Um, and then the next page is one that details the full list of brands that each corporation owns. So, for example, Cargill has almost 500 brands. So we list out all those different brands so that the user can get kind of get an idea of the scale that these corporations own of the consumption market. Um, and then we have a section that looks at lobbying. So it's a list of lobbyists who have been hired by the corporation, the issues they lobbied for, and a list of federal bills they lobbied to pass. Uh, and then we also look at government contracts, which display which US, U.S. federal agencies have contracts with this corporation, Department of Agriculture, Department of Energy, so on and so forth. And then the next section looks at education and money. So you get to explore how each corporation wields influence in education and academic research through targeted financial con contributions to schools and universities across the United States. And then the last section looks at income disparities. So you, look, you get to see how the CEOs of each corporation are compensated in comparison to the salary of the lowest paid worker within the same company. So you get to see like how, how great the inequity is just within that corporation itself. Nadia, you talked a bit about um, lobbying and the, these corporates' role, of, uh, role in, in government. Could you give a specific anecdote about a specific corporation's influence in Washington, what kind of policies they were supporting or, or going against, and, and what they did around that? Sure. So there's, there's, there's many different examples of this. But, uh, for example, when California wanted to pass the law to label uh, GMOs, uh, genetically modified goods, um, fruits and vegetables in markets. Um, Monsanto contributed millions of dollars to campaign against this, and they were actually successful, and, and that did not pass. So that's just one, one example of many that uh, I'm sure Sadiq can talk more about because he also did an entire report on the, uh, the Farm Bill, which is another huge piece of policy that's passed about every five years in the U.S. Um, that ensures subsidies on commodity crops, and also uh, it, it breaks down the amount of public assistance um, in food programs such as SNAP and WIC, the Women and Infant Children Program. So those, those are all huge policy pieces in the U.S. That, that directly impact millions of people and also pretty much dictate how we can consume the food and other food commodities that that we have in our markets. Uh, we might talk a little bit about the Farm Bill, but um, there's so many resources on the Shahidi Project. Let's go through some of the other ones um, included on the website. It was actually a, a new report, a, a kind of a short research brief on mergers in the agribusiness industry called The Era of Corporate Consolidation and the End of Competition, which looks specifically at three recent mergers and those mergers are uh, Dow Chemical and DuPont as one. And the second one is uh, Bayer and Monsanto. And the third is uh, ChemChina and uh, Syngenta. And um, the report concludes that, um, I'm quoting from the report, that the mergers would drastically reduce competition in the areas of crop protection, seeds, petrochemicals, further consolidate the agrochemical market, reduce competition, um, research and development, and uh, pose a critical danger to the ecosystem. 
um, and exacerbate the climate crisis. Sadly, can you talk a little bit about the report and corporate mergers and why there's such a cause for alarm? Well, uh, so when we, uh, in the last stages of the Shahidi uh, Corporation decoded, we find that it's very important uh, to talk about one of the biggest things happening around us, which is the corporate mergers. Because those corporate mergers are not uh, uh, a small uh, thing happening uh, within the food system. And it's very hard to talk about, uh, to, to, to monitor cooperation, but you cannot talk about corporate mergers. Uh, the public are not very fully aware about the, how that's a in very invasive um, kind of uh, way around uh, hindering uh, competition, hindering uh, uh, choices of consumerism and, 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 and the like. For example, uh, uh, those, those mergers you just mentioned, uh, the food system for since the mid-1990s was really controlled by six of those co corporations. Five of them part of these mergers. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of very scary to see that um, while they're claiming that their mergers is actually for, you know, streamlining and synergy between research and delivering good services, which is far, far away from the truth. W one, one fact we know for sure that now the consolidation of the food chain supply, the whole entire food chain supply, rests in the hand of very few. Um, and us as a consumer or as Earth, we have really very few options. So imagine the following. If one, if, if the next few years, the only solution for the hunger and food scarcity will be genetically modified food. What do power do we have actually to stop that? We don't, because those giant cooperation with their uh, uh, immense power of uh, research and development and money they invested in, they actually could convince many governments of the world that indeed this is the best way to go about it. And us as a consumer, uh, as like Nadia mentioned, because they're using lobby, we, can, we are not even aware if our food is genetically modified or not. So, so it's, it's a matter of became is, is accessible, cheap, and what that have consequences, one, on, on the science of genetics, two, in the uh, uh, health of the ecosystem, three, in the idea of competition itself. Um, so the danger of corporate mergers, uh, which has happened all, all the time, we've seen it in the financial sector, we've seen it in a uh, housing crisis, now we've seen it in the food system. So it's a continuous, and, and it's kind of they circumvent the whole entire idea of we are the people have the power to actually screen and approve or disapprove uh, foul play. And this is really foul play. Foul play that our government, which have antitrust laws, do not invoke them at all. In, that's including uh, the European Union and including American uh, economies like China and India and Brazil. So, so the impact of these mergers is not only just in terms of the financial power they exert, but the political power and also their practices in industrial agriculture against our ecosystem. So we seems, I don't want to be bleak, but it seems our option is getting uh, very uh, uh, kind of smaller and tighter in a way in which we need to make sure that uh, we understand what those mergers. I guess uh, one, one couple of things I will uh, suggest here, I would say, uh, the mergers of 
cooperation is also undermined the small farmer and small producers. Because now, a small producer cannot compete with those companies at all. While they could provide healthy food or organic food, what have you, or local food that is suitable to our culture, our need, that they cannot compete with Walmart. And we can talk about that later. They can't talk about these processed food companies. It's beyond their, their capacity to do so. Uh, the last thing I would say also, the idea that the, uh, th this, this uh, conglomerate companies or mergers, they also uh, uh, exert massive amount of lobbying, not only just for food and agriculture, but there's a lot of other host of things that we can talk about it. One of the other um, pieces of the website is you actually release a new explainer video that talks about the Shahidi project. And actually, it talks a lot about a lot of stuff about hunger, and um, it, it kind of uh, puts the whole framework of the website together and the, and the purpose of the project. And I, I just we just want to play about a one minute. It's a six minute video, but we're just going to play a one minute clip that kind of illustrates some of those ideas. And it talks about the move from industrial farming, sorry, from a local localized sustainable farming to industrial farming, and um, uh, forcing small farmers off their off their lands. And so here's the clip. Even though industrial agriculture is wasteful and ruinous beyond reason, it's profitable for corporations. And because the bottom line is their primary motivation, these corporations continue to pour investment and infrastructure into industrial agriculture, stripping resources and opportunities away from small and medium-sized farmers who might otherwise practice sustainable farming. It's a dangerous cycle. While the world's poorest go hungry and our environment is devastated, these companies congratulate themselves for turning record profits. Our current food system is rife with toxic inequity, but most people remain unaware of the gross amount of power corporations wield within it. This is no accident. The power structures are designed to be hidden and difficult to uncover. These corporations hide their dirty laundry very, very well. The video also notes that industrial agriculture uses at least 75% of the world's agricultural resources, but provides food for less than 30% of, of the global population in comparison to agroecological farming which is kind of the opposite. It only uses 25% of the world's agricultural resources, but provides food for 75% of the world's population. Can you explain why that is and, and contrast the two types of farming? Uh, great, this is a really good question. Let, let me start from just giving a, a little bit brief what agroecology is. Agroecology is one of the oldest practices that farmers use for millennia. So it's never something new. But we, uh, researcher and in academia, we figure out a, a term, a jargon, in order to, to, to describe that. Uh, I, I will go further to say that agroecology could be a, is a science and agroecology is a movement. So it, it's both combined. The other thing that often there is misconception about uh, agroecology, agroecology is not anti-technology at all, which is what this cooperation tried to depict. Agroecology could be uh, integrated or conventional or organic or intensive or extensive agriculture. So it's the same thing as what they tell us that industri all industrial agriculture and green revolution could do, which is absolutely uh, a myth. Uh, however, most uh, government 
since the inception of the neoliberal politics uh, around the globe in uh, late uh, early 1980s, it seems there is a pushback against all countries that try to re-engineer their own policy around uh, how to produce food for themselves, how to do agriculture. Uh, prior to 1970s, most countries practiced actually agroecology. Agroecology used less land, uh, have which and this is the most important piece of agricultural production. Use less land, use less mechanization with less uh, CO2 in our uh, atmospheric uh, and, and and contamination of our soil. Uh, do do not uh, seek to to transfer the food to further areas. As actually insist of consuming the food locally. So this method is, it could benefit from technology, from R&D, research and development. It could be supported by government. It could produce massive scale as a small scale. Uh, and it really help us to preserve the border of land we use. We could use smaller land to produce multiple type of fruits and vegetables in one place. Uh, that's in opposition to industrial agriculture, which is mono-agriculture, which is always strive to produce in large scale of land one particular crop, which we call it monoculture. And that's our problem with industrial uh, uh, agriculture. It has to use massive amount of land, massive amount of water, uh, and also massive machineries, and all that based on uh, carbon economy. So you need to use uh, fossil fuel in order to produce that amount of food that oftentimes you don't even eat. And that's the reason why we have more food than we need, and yet we have many hungry people. So agroecology is suitable for small farmers, suitable for mid-sized farmers, it's suitable for even big countries like United States or Brazil or, or even China. They could do that, and they've been doing that for millennia. And we could upgrade that by using technology, by understanding the science, and give it more money for R&D. However, those companies fear that competition. And that's exactly what they want in the competition between industrial and agroecological farming. So now we see the smaller farmer who try to do that, they often uh, face a lot of challenges. One of them, their products became a little bit expensive which is very true because they have to go through different processes and the corporation who got subsidies, who get cuts, who get like uh, uh, tax cuts and et cetera. So if we allow uh, farmers, small and mid-sized farmers, to use agroecological methods, we will see the benefits, not only in our health as individuals, but in terms of accessibility to food that is uh, culturally appropriate to us in any context. Plus, we will literally combat the uh, climate change in terms of reducing almost 56% of the uh, CO2 emission that industrial agriculture produces in our atmosphere. So one thing that stuck out to me when looking at the website was the section on education. And um, you noted on the website where corporates had uh, donated through to educational institutions, but not just universities, which makes sense because it's research and development, but also to K through 12 education. And I was wondering, firstly, Nadia, why um, why do corporates donate to K through 12? And secondly, why did you include it on the website? What is the significance there? Well, uh, to answer the first part about K through 12, I actually don't have a, a clear answer for you. Part of the difficulty in doing this research was actually not being able to have a, a good database of information on how corporations actually fund 
schools and universities throughout the United States. And that this is uh, something that I think is an area of research that really needs to be developed and looked at more closely. Um, Definitely corporations will give money to to the schools and universities where they're located. I think as like a, a quid pro quo kind of uh, attempt to uh, ameliorate relations within that community. Um, and as far as uh, universities go, um, that happens on a much wider scale. And Corporations give to many of the agricultural research or uh, universities, including land-grant universities, which are public universities that get money from the state specifically to work on uh, agricultural research uh, for the benefit of the public good. So when you mix the corporate funding within universities, uh, you, you really compromise the integrity of knowledge production within the U.S., and, and it not only does that, but it also limits academic freedom and pushes a corporate agenda. So you'll find that the knowledge production from universities, which you know are meant to be a free exchange of ideas and dialogue uh, that benefit the greater good, then turns to benefit the interests of corporations, uh, not the interests of the public or even the planet that we inhabit. And a great example of how this has played out um, that I wanted to mention is the case of Syngenta and Tyrone Hayes, who is actually an integrative biology professor at UC Berkeley. You know, he was hired by Syngenta to conduct a study on the herbicide uh, atrazine, which is used on half of the corn grown in the U.S. and is one of the most common contaminants in drinking water. And his findings showed that this herbicide actually had terrible side effects on the reproductive systems of frogs. And after reporting this, Syngenta did not rehire him and thereafter began systematically undermining and targeting him um, as he continued to do research on this herbicide. And if you want to learn more, uh, The New Yorker actually did an, a great investigative piece um, that you can look up to learn more. But that's simply one example of how detrimental corporate funding is in the university and to the public and critical knowledge production at large um, in the U.S., and on a global scale. I will just add one thing to Sarah's questions, like uh, why, why this cooperation, why we think, why we included the fund K-12. This is for me one of the most striking irony that in a country that uh, K-12 uh, is public, it's supposed to be supported by the government, it's supposed to be funded by the government, but yet now defunding that from the, from the state side and allow philanthropy regardless of their good intent or bad intent to actually fund those uh, schools. So what is that it does is elevate in the mind of the young that there's the people who do good in society. So look up to them. So their name became familiar. Monsanto funding a lot of K-12, a lot of schools, especially high schools, and particularly vocational schools. So I think the danger is, I'm not saying that philanthropy or foundation or, or corporation should not fund, but it has to be in a, a streamline with our principle, democratic principles and, uh, and transparency. Why you will fund those particular schools, not other schools? Why you don't give this fund as a corporation who make billions of dollars to the Department of Education and let them distribute the money as they see it fit? So it is a very simple question, but it seems very hard in the US to, to get your head around it. And the second thing, they if you look at most of the schools, are actually vocational schools. So they want to make sure to capture the mind and heart of these young people to go toward a very particular direction. So don't think about agriculture, you think about industrial agriculture, then think about this, think about that. 
and, and all that has a tremendous impact in the way in which we will understand. And that's, we hope that Shahidi could, uh, we have no illusion, Shahidi by itself cannot do it unless it's spread and it's spread its mission and, and, and vision. And other people picked up the tab as well to look specifically maybe to uh, this cooperation and other cooperation funding catered walls. What are some policies you'd like to see at the state, national, and international level to empower small or medium-sized farmers and to reduce monopoly that uh, major corporations have over the food system? I mean, I, I will I will allow Nadia also to do this because she does phenomenal work in terms of local uh, food system uh, here in Richmond. Uh, uh, but, you know, one of the things that uh, we aspire through the Shahidi uh, 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 project to do is first of all to really unmask the real player in our food system and in our agricultural industry. One, what I would love to see, uh, which is really kind of complicated, but let me be wishful thinker here, is separate money from politics. Because this is for us, I think, the people who work in the food system is really hard. I, I, and I know it sounds like a kind of weird things to say when you talk about agriculture, but we cannot, it doesn't seem that we can move forward with uh, fair and democratic and inclusive agricultural uh, practices unless we eliminate the influence of money in our politics. Through that, those companies and their uh, network being able to actually cir circumvent our rights to decide those uh, policies. So you ask about a specific, for example, uh, the Farm Bill, which is one of the giant uh, agricultural policy uh, acts in the United States that uh, give more subsidies to those corporations than actually to small farmer or farmer of color or even to rural farmers. Like, I would love to see that the Farm Bill actually do what it does best, which became an anti-poverty program, which that's how when it's in, uh, initiated in 1933, that was the goal, to uplift the, uh, the poor, and especially the rural poor. So if, we, if it does that, and if it does provide money and support for research and development in, for example, in agroecological methods, we really will see the benefits within our local context national context, but also the farm bill impact the international context by because they provide trade and food aid to other countries. So it's very complicated. So if we can strike one thing right in terms of the farm bill, for example, I think we will achieve a lot of good trickle down other uh, aspects. And the farm bill also have a bucket of money could actually support push uh, uh, back against climate change. So. So if you see, this is one, one, one policy that I would like to see in the United States, but there's other many uh, I could suggest, but I don't want to take up the time right now. I think that there are, I echo everything that Sadiq said, and I would also call for greater transparency with food, food and agriculture corporations and corporations at large. Uh, I think that there's very little information that's accessible to public about what the wheelings and dealings of these these huge transnational businesses are and how they actually impact people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I, I want to also talk about how U.S. food policy with corporations impacts uh, people outside the U.S. because there's been a lot of really detrimental impact of even the local, the domestic policy in the U.S. 
on uh, international agriculture. Um, a company like Monsanto that is based in the U.S. has uh, been been all over the world and in India now, you know, they are tied to about half a million suicides of, of local farmers there. They've been known to uh, create lawsuits against small farmers um, if their seed is found in their lands, um, even if it's not something that they actually planted. So if there's greater regulation and oversight of of the business dealings of these corporations, not just in the U.S., but internationally as well, because it has a really destructive impact on local um, agriculture around the world. Um, and then as far as work in Richmond, I think <clears throat> one of the, the biggest takeaways too is the impact of, of fast food chains in local small, poor, black and brown communities and neighborhoods. Um, oftentimes, these are neighborhoods that are classified as food deserts, which means that they have uh, little to no access to fresh and healthy foods, whether that be in supermarkets or farmers markets. And instead, you see almost every corner filled with a fast food chain like McDonald's or Taco Bell or Burger King. So people really only have access to these fast foods, which create really bad health impacts like diabetes, obesity, um, hypertension and heart disease. Um, and this is also uh, racially uh racially stratified and, and disproportionate um, along racial lines. So you, f you find that within the black community in Richmond, obesity rates among youth are 30, among black youth are 34%, Latino youth 33%, 25% among Asian youth, and 13% among white youth. Um, and then the overall obesity within Richmond, uh, within the adult population is 58%. They're considered overweight or, or obese. Um, so this is something that, that is happening across the United, United States, um, within black and brown neighborhoods. There's also high targeting, um, of, of advertisements to these communities. Um, and, and moreover, these corporations like McDonald's, the fast food chains are hiring people at minimum wage jobs. And so you'll see that people working in these industries are getting underpaid, with little to no benefits. Um, so they have to seek other employment opportunities, working two to three jobs, which also has a great impact on somebody's health, well-being, somebody's family. Um, so these are also issues that are, are locally based, but also you find across the entirety of the United States. I guess to add very briefly to what uh, uh, Nadia said, which is, is really that's the heart of the problem. But imagine this American spend uh, about 90% of their uh, food budget on processed food, which is that's exactly what, what Nadia was suggesting when you, you have a food desert. And, and there is no single company in the United States has more impact on what and how food is manufactured than Walmart itself, which one of the corporations that we screen. Because today, half of the Walmart business come from grocery sales. So just imagine that. Uh, and one out of every $3, uh, American is spent on grocery in the US goes to Walmart. So this is like, uh, it's not an easy information that we access. It takes us a lot. And when we think about it in terms of like structurally and systematically, you know, brown and black and, and even white low income uh, communities being subjugated to this type of food. Uh, at the same time, our healthcare system is failing. So it's really uh, lead them to 
this sentence over time. That's happened here in the most developed nations, but also like Nadia mentioned in, in underdeveloped nation or emerging economies. And that ties into something else that um, was highlighted in the UN report, the Food and Agriculture Organization report about hunger globally. And one thing we didn't talk about is where it's um, where the impacts are felt most globally. And from that same report, they talk about the situations worsening in South America and most regions of Africa. And just to cite a couple of figures here, it notes that Africa remains the continent with the highest number of people who are suffering from undernourishment, which affects 21% of the population there comp compared to about 11, 10, 10 or 11% globally. And it's getting worse also in, um, in Asia. And what this does is it actually has implications on migration. And last year you published a report with Hassan Aizi about, about, about forced migration. It's called Moving Targets. So in a few words, can you also talk a little bit about the relationship between these corporations, the global uh, food crisis, and forced migration from the south to the north? Yes, I, I, exactly. That's what we also saw when we uh, thought about the moving target uh, uh, global forced migrations. One of the major populations that move out is actually rural communities. And rural communities are for, again, for thousands of years, one of their uh, source of uh, income and work and, and uh, occupation is agricultural industry. So now what we see since 2004 that there is... Um, uh, massive movement of land grab, not necessarily by those particular corporations, but is a mix of different actors, including those corporations. But those corporations, what they do is to increase the need or to speculate the need for, let's say, alternative uh, fossil fuel, biofuels, uh, for green energy in our part of the world, in the most privileged part, and subjugate those global south country to uh, allocate their lands into producing biofuels or oil seeds in this matter. Uh, you know, West Africa is very well, no well known for that. South Southern Africa, uh, part of Latin America and, and Asia. Is, uh, uh, and there we see that this the same population move outside of their uh, places because, you know, producing those type of uh, oil seeds doesn't require massive labor force. So they lose uh, uh, employment opportunity. Second, they produce something they can't eat. Third, they have, they pushed out of their lands, whether through the direct uh, uh, management of their state. So now those young people, particularly if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, uh, more than 51% of the population are under 25. So that's mean like able and capable of, of, of doing a uh, uh, manual job on agriculture provide that space. So those people being forced to move out of their social context and moving to the cities and they cannot sustain them, themselves in the cities. So literally, they've been forced to migrate, whether internally or externally. So the practice of cooperation and speculation in the industri uh, industrial agricultural markets have direct impact in forced migration. Because now people have no land, have no jobs, and we wonder where they will go. One thing about that, too, that I think is often overlooked when, when talking about uh, dispossession of land and displaced persons is also the, the huge loss in local knowledge 
that you get with that. So people who have been tending to the land in a sustainable way for generations, uh, decades, are then pushed off their land. And, and with that, you lose that, that knowledge of the local ecosystem and, and whatever has been accumulated over those generations that is actually they're acting as environmental stewards to the land and then being replaced with this incredibly harmful, ecologically harmful practice of industrial farming. And I agree with, with, with Nadia what she said. At the time when we thought about Shahidi, which four years ago, uh, the Horn of Africa hit harder by hunger. And we decided that that place needs to be uplifted because they are resilient, they have different agrological methods, but they are not being able to do it, not because they lack, but what Nadia mentioned, you know, this uh, uh, the scaping of local knowledge dealing with, with this type of desertification and, and the harm practice of climate change. And on that note, we're going to have to end it there. And that was our conversation with Asad Sheikh, the head of the Global Justice Program at the Haas Institute, and Nadia Barhum, a former researcher at the program, who were the lead researchers on the Shahidi Project that was just released earlier this month. If you enjoyed this interview and want to hear more episodes of Who Belongs, visit us online at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu forward slash who belongs. You can also find us on social media using our handle at Haas Institute. Thank you for listening.